Jennings, in my counseling practice, I encourage clients to identify and dispute false beliefs. My bipolar and borderline clients often struggle with this because they have lived with dysfunctional thinking for so long that it feels normal. How do you suggest helping people realize healthy versus unhealthy thinking patterns when they've uh, had very uh, little exposure or positive uh, thoughts uh, and emotions? So first off, you do want to definitely separate bipolars uh, from borderlines. Bipolar is an organic problem. If they're in a manic or depressive state, their brain circuitry is not processing information normally, and they need um, some type of physiologic intervention. And, and many of them can have delusional thinking, and uh, you don't resolve delusions with a cognitive therapy or anything like that. You have to treat the brain so the brain then can reason again, and then, then they can have healthier thought patterns. So you have to really want to differentiate that. Borderline, though, is uh, often very amenable to um, uh, changes in patterns of thinking and decision making. They often have uh, the primary issue with, with much borderlines is not only they have a lot of false beliefs, but they have a pattern of emotion-based decision making rather than evidence-reason-based decision making. And so my book, Could It Be This Simple?, actually has been extremely helpful to borderlines all over the world. And if you don't have a copy, uh, email um, Francesca at our request line. And if you have a U.S. postal address, we'll send you one out at no charge. You can also, if you're in our member section, which you are because you put the question, you can listen to the audio version for free. But the, the print version is very good for, for people because it has a diagram of the model of the mind how God designed it, how sin has damaged it, and the consequences for making emotion-based decision-making versus uh, reason-based decision-making. And we found that this has been extremely helpful over the years in people with borderline uh, decision-making patterns. Okay, uh, of late, I have been confronted with polygamy versus homosexuality questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, care to share your thoughts on the two? I presently consider both unideal, um, but I understand that the issue may be a little more complicated than I think. I would love to improve my understanding and hence uh, pre presentation of the matter um, uh, that needs to arise. So let's take polygamy first. Um, the question on, um, first off, you're correct. Both of these um, situations occur because sin is in the world. Neither one was God's ideal, and had uh, Adam and Eve never sinned, neither one of these um, patterns of behavior um, uh, would have uh, ever manifested in the human species. But because of sin in the world, that we have all types of variations from God's design, whether that be blindness or deafness or infertility. Infertility is not part of God's design. It was, they were to be fruitful and multiply, uh, God told them before sin. So so there are a lot of things that happen in the world because all nature groans under the weight of sin. And then there are things that are purposeful choices that go against God's revealed will for, for human beings. So to the degree, polygamy is not something that happens because of biological conditions in the world. Polygamy happens because of, of belief patterns and personal decision-making patterns. And to the degree that it's a willful and known decision, it's always sin to engage in polygamy. However, not everybody involved in polygamy is sinning. Uh, many parts of the world, uh, in our culture today, uh, women can be sold into polygamous relationships without any willful decision-making on their own part. They're treated as almost property by their families and or others, and so they may find themselves in a, in a, as a third or fourth wife, and they've never made a choice to be in that situation. They're not sinning in that relationship. Now, the power brokers that are treating them subhuman, they are committing sins, uh, whether they're the ones selling them or trading them or, or taking them and so forth. That would be because it's an exploitation of people, and it's a, it's a lack of love. So um, to the degree that you're purposeful in this. But I would even give you another example. In my personal opinion, and um, you can disagree with me if you want, uh, Jacob did not make a willful choice to end up a polygamist, <laughs> at least for, for two. Right. Okay? Uh, he was tricked. 
He was tricked. And I don't, and I don't, and, and after, and he would have sent Leah on her way. <laughs> Except culturally and otherwise, it would have been very harmful to do that to her. Uh, would have destroyed, uh, and he would have just taken Rachel the next day as soon as he figured it out. But he was tricked. And so, and uh, I never see where, where God actually condemns him for that. He's condemned for a lot of things. But this is part of his comeuppance. Um, comeuppance meaning um, he reaps some of the things he sows. He, was de- he deceived his brother. He ended up being a, a victim of deception himself. Had he not deceived his brother, he would have never ended up in that circumstance. He wouldn't have been there. Had he not deceived his brother, he would have stayed home. His father would have arranged a relationship, probably with Rachel, with them, and they would have had that relationship, and he wouldn't have been tricked by his uncle in the first place. So his own so- see- seeds of, of deception originally led him to the position to be vulnerable to that type of deception. But... Um, so polygamy, to me, most of the time, it's a purposeful choice to the degree that it's not. And then um, sometimes it's culturally conditioned where people don't even realize it's wrong. Um, there are no, no, no victims in the sense people are forced against their will. Um, all parties are complicit and voluntarily engage in uh, including the second and third wife. They, they actually want that, that. They want to be the third wife of this man. Uh, that can happen in certain cultures and uh, because he happens to be the prince of so-and-so and she's going to live in a palace and he's only going to come visit her twice a year. And, and, uh, and so she has lots of reasons she, she wants to engage in this. And, uh, and in the culture, she's never considered uh, anything otherwise. So there's no enlightenment in some people's minds that there's anything other than this is the way you do things. And for them, I don't believe God holds that accountable. It's not ideal. It doesn't work out well. They don't have the intimacy of the unity that God wants a husband and wife to have. Um, but again, I think it has to do with knowledge and intelligent decision making. Uh, in, in the Adventist church, um, when people who are in polygamous relationships converted to the Adventist church in the cultures and the part of the world that they um, lived in, the Adventist church allowed them to keep all of their wives because to do so would cause devastating harm to any of the wives they got rid of. Often, also, the first wife was an arranged marriage that the, that the, was arranged by the parents that the person themselves did not choose and voluntarily entered. They entered under contract. And it was the second or sometimes third wife was the one that they wanted and the one that they gave their heart to. And so um, to get rid of the other wives would have been damaging. Also, they often had children with multiple wives. And to come into the church and have to displace your, your wives, you now displace the children uh, who become illegitimate children. And this is just causes cascades of pain and damage. So while once they come into the church, they, they get to keep their wives, but they also don't get to add more to them <laughs> after that. So that, that is, a, I think, a reasonable position in the world of sin in which we live. Well, the homosexuality question is, uh, is, is a little bit more nuanced because you have biological uh, questions of sexual orientation versus homosexual behavior. The Bible's condemnation is about homosexual behavior by heterosexual people. Okay? That's what it's about. People who are not homosexual engaging in homosexual activity. Um, and that is what's damaging. You read about it in um, Romans chapter 1. They were doing all types of pagan fertility cult worship stuff going on in Rome, and they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, and they worshiped image made with their own hands, and therefore God gave them up. And when he gave them up, they exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, becoming inflamed with lust for the same sex. Well, you can't exchange something that you don't first possess. So I can't exchange this red shirt for a blue one if I don't possess the red one. So Paul is talking about they're exchanging their natural relations, which is what they previously had, for these inflamed relationships of the same-sex desire. And so he's talking about heterosexuals through debased worship 
and fertility practices and flaming themselves with desires they didn't previously have. This would be the same thing we have today in our culture, not through fertility cult worship, but through pornography use. And through pornography use, we can then inflame ourselves with desires that we didn't naturally have, and the Bible speaks against this, and and, uh, we still speak against this. But the Bible's silent on people that would be called intersex conditions, and I would encourage you, if you're really interested in knowing more about this, get my book, The God-Shaped Heart, and read the chapter, um, uh, Love in the Real World, where I go into great detail about the neurobiology of human sexuality. Is there a relationship between God's forgiving and God's healing? Are they ever synonymous? So it really goes back to how do you define words? Okay, how do you define words? um, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In that context, God the Son, who previously had already said that all, not all power has been given to him on earth, including the power to forgive sins, so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth and authority on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk, he tells the man. So here's the God, remember the Godhead who forgives sins, and he's forgiving his crucifiers. Were they all healed and now his friends? No, they were not, okay? So to the degree that we're talking about God's attitude, God's choice to forgive or not forgive, there has never been an obstacle there. God forgives everybody. God's forgiving toward everybody, and he forgives everybody. However, the people who crucified Christ did not accept the forgiveness that was just freely given to them. They didn't accept it. If they'd accepted it, it would come into their heart. They would have realized how wrong they were. They would have, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. They would have repented, and then having received forgiveness first, experience that been given and repented, they would have entered a state of forgiveness. The state of forgiveness is the state of healing. So it depends on where you're, where you're focusing. On God's attitude, which many do in the penal model, well, you didn't ask, you didn't get the right payment, you didn't repent, you didn't confess, therefore God's required to not forgive you. No, he still forgives you. You just remain unhealed because you've closed your heart to God's grace, God's love, God's truth, God's healing power, and you remain in a state of unforgiveness even though God forgives you. And so, yes, there is a relationship because if God didn't forgive anybody, nobody would be healed, but God does forgive everybody. So God's forgiveness is not an obstacle to our healing. It's our unwillingness to repent or receive what God freely offers. Let's see, do you think that those who are going along with what's going on now will go along with the beast system in the future? Yes, to a great degree. That's exactly why this is happening. Um, One of the things we know neurobiologically is the more you engage in a behavior, the more easy it is to engage in a behavior, whether that's um, psychomotor, uh, psychomotor, um, physical control over something. You learn how to drive a four-on-the-floor standard shift vehicle with a clutch. Uh, The more you do that, the more you can do it without thinking, the easier it becomes. You can actually have conversation not even thinking about shifting. You go to England, shift seats, have to shift with your left hand now. Suddenly that's not easy. And in fact, if somebody runs out in front of you and you have to gear down, you know when you're driving a four on the floor, you not only brake, you gear down. Okay? Somebody runs out in front of you try to, and you gear down, you're not grabbing the stick, you're grabbing the handle. Because automatically under crisis, you do what's wired in very deeply. Okay? These are called habit patterns. Okay? Neurobiologically, the more we do something, the easier it is for us to repeat that. Um, the, as we... As we do new habit patterns that are healthier, we wire those in. And as we stop firing the old patterns, the brain prunes them back, and it becomes, we become less and less likely to repeat those things. And that's how we change neurobiologically. But uh, So those who um, form beliefs and hold to those beliefs and practice those beliefs uh, in methods in their life, uh, they form a framework for seeing the world. They begin, uh, and, and then if the Holy Spirit convicts, which the Holy Spirit does, 
they will be faced with a decision. They repent or they deny. Repent or deny. And if they deny, then they rationalize and they justify and they make excuses and they find fault with the light bearers. Those who are in darkness don't want to come into light lest their evil deeds be... he He did those miracles by the power of Beelzebub. Okay? And so those who practice these methods now justify the reason why. And here's one of the big traps, folks. Here's one of the big traps. I want you to see it. I'll give it to you. God's concern is your eternal life. Read on White. She talks all the time about we have an eternal soul to save. We have souls to save. The health message that we have as a church, the reason we have a health message is so that we can ensure sinners live in wickedness an extra 10 years. That's why. We want to give them 10 or 20 more years of wicked, wild living. No. What's it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What's it profit a man to live an extra 25 years because of a healthy diet and lose his soul? What's it profit a man to get an injection and lose his soul? Okay? God's primary concern ultimately is not our physical health. Our physical health and the health message is only primarily purpose is to give you the healthier brain so that you can have less vulnerability to temptation and deception so you can think better and you can have a greater usefulness in God's cause because you're not enfeebled or infirmed. But it's about your soul. So think about the people Jesus healed in his day, the lepers that he healed, the blind that he healed, the woman with the issue of blood. Think about all those people he healed, Lazarus that he raised from the dead. Where are all those people today? They're sleeping in the grave, the first death, including Lazarus. They're all back in the grave. Okay? One of Satan's deceptions, and here it is, after I lay this out for you, is to get people to value temporal life over eternal life. To exchange eternal life for a few more years of temporal life. This is the threat. We see it in the Bible. What was the threat to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den? And the martyrs through history. And Paul. And Jesus sat the crucifixion weekend. The threats are always save your temporal life, save your temporal life, save your temporal life by doing something to violate God's principles, that you embrace the methods and principles of the world into your character so you become worldly. And so one of the things that's happening is in the world today, people are are valuing saving temporal lives over living God's kingdom and principles. And the more they do that, so when the beast rises, the beast is going to rise to protect the world, to protect the environment, to protect the planet, to protect people's health, to prevent people from starving, from doing this. And we're going to use these methods. We've got to protect from this, that, and the other. And we're going to do that. It's all grand deception. Yes, I am not diminishing the health mess. I live a healthy life. I wrote a book on how to prevent dementia through all these principles applied in reality. Yes, we want to do that, but not at the expense of violating God's laws, God's design laws. And this whole thing that's happening in the world is to get people to overvalue, which is driven by the survival drive. Me first, me first, make me safe, make me safe. We've got to be safe, we've got to be safe, got to be safe, got to be safe. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bow down because we've got to be safe. Got to be safe from fire. Bow down. Got to be safe. Got to be safe from lions. Uh, worship, worship only this guy. Got to be safe. 
safetyism. It is a corruption. It's temporal life over eternal life. And I'm going to tell you, you can do that institutionally. It's better for one man to die than our nation. We've got we to protect our nation. It's better that we violate the, 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 health and the, princi- the health of our employees, the health of our patients, and, and violate the, the principles of God so that we can save our hospital corporations. We've got to save the hospital corporations because we have a health message to carry forward. And we can't carry a health message forward if we don't save the corporation. Save the corporation. It doesn't matter if we violate God's principles. This is the corruption that's happening in the world. Yes, so I think that as people practice this, they double down on these principles and they, and they look in the mirror and they say, but we're saving lives. We're promoting health. Okay. But you're using God's methods to do it. So in a simple way to say this, you can't win God's cause using Satan's methods. You can't do it. And that's what's happening, I say. So I think a lot of people are going to be duped. Let's see. What is your current position on what appears to be significant in numbers and size meteor strikes in the past history of Earth? Of course, keeping the integrative evidence-based. I, I don't even know what to make of that question. I, 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 you're going to have to expand more on what you, you mean by that because I don't even know what that question is asking. I think meteors are, are, are striking Earth, uh, and they have struck Earth, so I, I don't know what the question's asking. The human understanding of a God, the Father, and Son relationship makes it easy to think Jesus is subordinate to the Father. Can you think of another way to describe the relationship to reflect their co-equals? So there was a, I encourage you to get my notes for today. They'll be posted most likely tomorrow. Dean usually posts them on Sunday. And I go through the whole example. But the, the idea of the father and the son relationship is to help us understand the intimacy of that. Um, but my understanding of the way the Godhead works is that they have amongst themselves decided to take different roles. And if you understand uh, the economy of God's kingdom, okay, who is the most supreme in God's kingdom, according to Jesus? The least. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. In God's kingdom, those who have all power and authority, John 13, serve those with the least. And so Jesus is exalted. He who um, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of the servant all the way through the, the, way through the cross. Therefore, he is exalted above. <laughs> Okay, why? Because the most exalted are the ones who serve the most. So in one way to understand it, the father would be the least exalted and the son would be the most exalted because the son is the greatest manifestation of the self-sacrificial love of the, father, the character of God. So they, they decided amongst themselves to take these positions in which they um, carry out different functions, not because any one couldn't have done any of the functions of the other. They all could have done all the functions, but some, something in their infinite wisdom, they decided to divide one aspect being Jesus was the member of the God who left infinity and became that bridge builder that we talked about. And because he was the bridge builder, it became necessary for him to be the one to do the creation of planet Earth because Lucifer alleged equality with, with Jesus. 
So Jesus had to show that, in fact, he's a creator, not a created being. So he's the one through which all things are made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Evidence-based, not just declaration. And then Jesus uh, was the one Lucifer alleged, we have a ruler over us. We're not free anymore. He'll abuse his power. And so Jesus shows that even when his abusive children killing him on the cross, and he has all power given to him, John 13, he won't use his power to stop us from unrighteously and unjustly killing him. Thus, you read in Revelation, Every time they see the lamb who was slain, worthy, worthy, worthy. He's worthy to have power because he's safe with the power. And so um, they've taken different roles amongst themselves, but they all have the same capacity to do any of the roles is the way I understand it. So Ellen White actually has a statement somewhere. She says, if the father were to come instead of the son, the history we have in the life of the son would not have been changed in one, in one, in one element at all. It would have been exactly the same. So... All right, let's close our prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and we thank you that you send Jesus with the fullness of Godhead dwelled in Jesus bodily. So we can actually see what you're like. We've seen Jesus, we've seen you in character. And we pray now that your spirit will take the victory of Christ and reproduce it in us, actualize it, make it real, that we can live out your principles. We pray in your holy name, amen.